perfect? Bang on my chest if you think I'm perfect. Go ahead, bang on it. No heart? You gotta have heart. Miles and miles of heart. This is Patchwork Heart Ministries' Young Catholics Respond, brought to you by Breadbox Media. Now, here's your host, Bill Snyder. Thanks, Adam, and welcome to the program, everybody. I am Bill Snyder. This is Young Catholics Respond, and thank you so very much for being with us here today and joining us for another podcast, another radio show. It's wonderful to have you here uh, tuning in and listening to us. Uh, I want to direct your attention uh, at the beginning of the program to our website, patchworkheart.org, where you can find the Fearless Scriptural Rosary. The Fearless Scriptural Rosary is a rosary that we developed uh, during the pandemic, uh, COVID-19 here, to help you overcome fear, doubt, worry, anxiety. All you you need to do is go over to our website, uh, enter your email address, and you're going to get a return email uh, to download the free PDF. And this rosary was designed... Uh, to uh, pair the scriptures that say, Be not afraid and fear not with the Hail Marys in the rosary. Uh, And it's a very unique, powerful prayer. Uh, I love praying it myself. So uh, please, just go over and get that free uh, PDF download by entering your email on our website. Uh, But I don't want to spend too, too much time talking about ourselves today and and our initiatives because we have a wonderful guest with us. His name is Barry Smith. He is the founder of the International Catholic Media Association, which seeks to provide widely accessible educational and historical content through media communications in order to build a community of faith and truth, engage in related educational activities, and help develop ministry-related media outreach. Barry, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us again here on Young Catholics Respond. Hello, Bill. Good to be with you today. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you you do wonderful work. Uh, and I'm just wondering if you can explain a little bit about uh, the Catholic Media, uh, International Catholic Media Association and, uh, and, and some of the uh, amazing work you guys have been doing and have done uh, already with this, with this project. Well, sure. We... Um we started out is our first uh, project was uh, to develop a documentary uh, and probably into a docu series due to the amount of uh, information that was contained in it. And it all started with um, a friend of mine. What um, I met a number of years ago uh, up at Marytown in Libertyville, Illinois, and her name is Eileen Vogel. And when I met Eileen, uh, we were connected through a mutual friend and I found out that she was very active in the pro-life movement. And that got my attention immediately because we were doing a pro-life story back then. Um, so I, I wanted to talk to her and we met in Washington, DC at the March for life. Oh, I think this was like 2012 and we filmed her right on the steps of the Supreme court as we turned the corner and we were marching in the March for Life and uh, captured her story. And she lives not far from me at all. So as we developed our friendship, I found out that she was one of the founders of the March for Life. And that immediately got me interested. And I said, well, I, I, I got to hear this story. And she started to tell me bits and pieces. And I said, well, I want to capture this and we need to preserve this for prosperity because people didn't need to know how this all developed. And eventually, one thing led to another, a producer, a a videographer, director, all came together. We went and captured Eileen's story, and that was just the tip of the iceberg. That was just the very beginning. And she started 
given us explicit details. She's a wonderful person. She's got a steel trap of a memory. And she started telling me about her journey to Washington, D.C. upon the invitation to Nellie Gray and how she represented her pro-life group, which was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at the time. It was called the Women's Concern for the Unborn Child, which was founded in 1969. So Eileen represented this group, went to Washington, D.C., and there were five other pro-life activists from mainly the East Coast that were also invited by Nellie Gray. And the reason this invitation came about was because Nellie was really concerned about the Roe versus Wade decision, which had just um, gone through the Supreme Court in January of 73. So now we're in October of 73. Just months after this, Nellie puts out this invitation. She had a database, as primitive as it was, through the National Right to Life. She sent out these invitations. Six other representatives came. And Nellie had a previous meeting earlier that day with a lot of constituents in the Beltway. And they all overwhelmingly said, no, we can't do it. You know, it'll be cold. Nobody will come. We don't have the money. We can't organize it. It's too close to the, you know, it's too close to the anniversary date already. It's October. So it was an overwhelming no. So these six other people, Eileen Vogel was one of them, Peggy Jaycox, Marianne Pierce, Bill Devlin, Lou Gardner, and John Juan all stayed for dinner at Nellie's. And Nellie said, now I want to hear what you have to say. They went around the dining room table, and every one of them said, we need to do it. And so in the middle of October, just four months before the first anniversary, these seven people with no money, no organizational outline or summary put together said, we're going to do it. And the, the, through spiritual inspiration, they raised the money, they organized it, they put it together. Nellie Gray handled all the legal in D.C. She was a D.C. attorney. And in January of 1974, they pulled off the first March for Life. And it was only supposed to happen once because it was supposed to be a constitutional human life amendment against the abortion bill. And obviously... They didn't just have it once, but they had enough money left in the bank from the funds to have it the second year. And from there, it just gained momentum. So now I've got all this information from from Eileen on these founders and what pro-life groups they came from and what organizations they started with. And we went back into those groups, and we went back into the founders of some of these groups and then we started finding people that were associated to input the direction of these pro-life groups as they were founded in the late 60s. So now we're, we're looking at all this and we're, well, we're way beyond the March for Life story. And we have so much information. We're kind of telling the story of the pro-life movement. Yeah. And that's where this all developed. That's where the national pro-life archive project developed after the story of the March for life. We started getting into some of the people that you just don't ever hear about people that were never on the front lines like Nellie Gray or Randy Engel and Judy Brown, Joe Scheidler, you know, these people were visible and very active, but there were stories behind them and where they came from and what, organizations they were with and how they influenced the start of some of these organizations. 
And we started to amass documents. We started, Joe Scheidler gave us his entire office of analog material, like over a thousand cassette tapes, over a hundred VHS videos of him on TV back in the seventies and other rallies and his notes and Randy Engel's papers from the mid sixties through um, her development of U.S. Coalition for Life. And this is, I mean, literally thousands of pager, pages in analog data that needs to be converted. So we said, well, we need to convert this, we need to preserve it, and we're going to put it into a museum. So we decided to create the National Pro-Life Archive Museum, which is going to be virtual. And so my goal is to get it up into a brick and mortar one day in D.C. so people can actually walk through and get a more of a three-dimensional feel of all these people, of all their work. So this is the project we're involved in right now, building this museum, which is a huge undertaking, not only with all the work and the documents, and but the financial aspect of it and the challenges of getting everything laid out where we can systematically start to convert this from analog to digital and keep adding to the museum because we're just the first curators of this great project. And by the will of God, it'll be around long after I'm gone. <laughs> so people will know the truth of how all this started. And one day people will look back and say, my God, I can't believe how barbaric we were. You know, that innocent lives were just snuffed out. That An innocent child that had nothing on his record to be convicted, an innocent child is condemned to death over somebody else's choice, which just isn't right, which is against the divine law of God's plan. You just can't condemn, condemn somebody to death, an innocent life, an, an, an innocent child. So these people who saw that and had the conviction to try to change our country and the world, because as that March for Life started in 1974, with 20,000 people, it's now a global event. You know, it's in 14 countries. There's hundreds of them across the United States, at the um, state and local levels, even as small as a couple hundred people. And as in Chicago, they have one now that draws over 10,000 people. Yeah. And everybody, everybody knows the one in D.C., the, the godfather of them all draws anywhere from three to 500,000 people every year. So it is a global event. It, it, it's a global issue because it, it, it takes on international consequences of human life. And so that's the aspect of the story now that we need to get out to everybody, that the, all this truth will be preserved. All these documents will be accessible. And as we develop this curriculum, we can put it into educational curriculum as well. And as everybody knows now with COVID and the, the coronavirus, hundreds of thousands of kids are at home and probably hundreds of thousands of kids won't go back into public schools. So we can develop a very comprehensive educational curriculum that they can bring right in their home and learn about all this also. Yeah, you know, it's just a fascinating project and, and fascinating work that you've done with this, uh, with this, uh, with this mission. Uh, and, and so 
first of all, thank you for 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 embarking on this because you know our our history, uh, especially the uh, correct history of the uh, pro-life movement is is, is so needed uh, because because it is so uh, diverse. It's hit so many different countries. Uh, those who do not know the story. Um, that you are telling, it is such an important story to be told. Um, and so and so thank you for embarking on it. Um, and I can't wait to talk with you a little bit more uh, about, about this on the other side of the break. I have to take a short break here, Barry. But when we come back, I, I want to continue our conversation because there's so many uh, great ways that uh, people can get involved too. Uh, you know, support you financially. Uh, this this really uh, will will end up being, uh, <laughs> in some ways, a hall of fame for uh, for the pro life uh, movement. So, uh, I, so I want to talk with you uh, a little bit more on the other side of this break. But uh, we'll just take a short break here, and then we'll be right back on Young Catholics Respond. Don't go anywhere, folks. Patchwork Heart Ministry is committed to sowing hope into broken hearts by helping young people encounter the love of Jesus Christ and His Catholic Church through prayer, storytelling, and media initiatives. We invite you to prayerfully consider supporting this mission financially. Mail your tax-deductible donation to Patchwork Heart Ministry at P.O. Box 563 Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, zip code 53147 or visit patchworkheart.org to donate online. That's Patchwork Heart Ministry, P.O. Box 563, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, 53147, or online at patchworkheart.org. Hi, everybody. Bill Snyder here. Just want to thank you for listening to this episode of Young Catholics Respond. And as a founder of Patchwork Heart Ministry, we have so much more going on than just our podcasts. Check it out at patchworkheart.org. Your heart is always beating, but you never have to think about it. Welcome back to Young Catholics Respond. Once again, Bill Snyder. Welcome back, everybody, to Young Catholics Respond. I'm Bill Snyder. It's uh, great to be with you, uh, no matter where you're listening from today. And uh, I'm talking with Barry Smith. He is the founder of the International Catholic Media Association. And I really do encourage you all to go over and visit his website. You can simply Google International Catholic Media Association or the uh, email, the uh, web address is internationalcatholicmediaassociation.com. He also has uh, First Seven Steps, which, uh, which Barry was kind of talking about in the first half of the program as well, the firstsevensteps.com. So please go over and check out and support his mission. You know, uh, this, this work is so very important. And uh, if you're able to support uh, the International Catholic Media Association financially, uh, please do so. Uh, they are a legal 501c3, uh, so all uh, donations are tax deductible. And uh, Barry, I, I, uh, I know you are so passionate about uh, this movement, and, and why was this movement necessary? You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's a, a large uh, part of the question that we have to answer. Why was this movement even necessary uh, to begin with? Um, and, and, you know, certainly all of the um, founders of the March for Life, uh, you know, were responding to something, something that was creeping up in our culture called abortion uh, for, for probably a long time that was just ratified, um, you know, Legally in the Supreme Court in 1973, but there was a longer backstory to that, and I and I think during this 
uh, pro-life month of uh, October, I think it's important to kind of tell the full story, tell the truth about that. So if you would, maybe just uh, highlight for us the how we got to the point where abortion is legal in the United States. Well, sure. The, the decision in 1973 put a uniform acceptance across the country on, on abortion. Prior to that, there were several states that already had legalized it. Um, in 1970, it was legal in Hawaii, Colorado, New York, Washington State, and other states started to notice the general progression of the acceptance of the abortive child. The the, the part of a child could be aborted if it was a risk to the mother for health purposes, if there were other concerns about the child. And it was the drip method. And then it finally came into, well, we can accept general abortion up to the first trimester. And then other states saw that and they said, well, we'll do this. And then it became to the point where it was done without without any vote. It was just ratified. And so there was a lot of attention prior to 1973. In, ni- in 1970, New York was allowing abortions under any circumstances. So people from other states that surrounded the area were going to New York to get abortions. People as far away as Illinois and Indiana were driving to New York to get their abortion. So the backstory on that is that there were other pro-life groups that were aware of this, that were formed at the state level to take action against this, to try to halt it. And they were getting, they were making headway. They were, had a lot of attention. They, there was a grassroots movement. There was a good pushback. And then unfortunately there were a lot, the whole I don't want to say the whole, but many elements of the, of the movement at state levels was sabotaged. And obviously the decision in 73 changed everything. But so we back it up further. Okay. So in, in, in the late sixties, there was a general attitude that abortion was accessible. It was convenient. It wasn't uh, messy quote unquote as you know, some of the back alley abortions in the fifties, it was, it was a lot more convenient for without health risk for the mother. And it was kind of attached to the feminist movement for the independence of the woman. But ultimately the feminist movement was just a scapegoat for the abortion platform. Cause if you push it back into the late fifties where it was starting to take hold and starting to gain some momentum. It really never let go from the entire formation of eugenics, euthanasia, forced sterilization, and population control. And all of those were elements that were ingrained into the country as far back as the early 1900s. And they, there was a far far greater formidable movement that really took hold under the title of eugenics and eugenics was the term eugenics 
was introduced by Sir Francis Galton in 1887. And Francis Galton was a cousin of Charles Darwin. And when he read about Darwin's evolutionary theories, he incorporated that belief. And he was totally on board for selection of the fittest. And he incorporates the term eugenics, that people will be bred to be the fittest, to be the finest. And those that aren't, those that are undesirable, will be eliminated. So he carried the eugenics movement from England into the United States. And then around the turn of the century in the early 1900s, there was a guy named Harry Laughlin. And Harry was working in at Cold Springs on Long Island, doing a lot of research. And Harry was a huge eugenicist. And he was being funded by some big, big dollars through Carnegie and Rockefeller. And Harry went on into the 1920s and the 1930s and he carried this eugenics movement and he, he passed away in 1943, but he passed it on to other people that brought it into the 1940s and the 1950s. And ultimately the 1960s where other younger eugenicists and people that were pro for sterilization and certainly the population control, the population explosion took off in the 60s, that the world was overpopulated, that we were going to starve to death, we were going to run out of resources. And it became an overwhelming belief by many that there were too many people. So they kind of attached that to the abortion industry. And if you'll look at the numbers over the years, the overwhelming amount of abortions have always occurred within minorities. African-American, Hispanic have had the largest number of abortions. So, And those were the desirables to eliminate through the eugenics movement in the 1910s and 1920s. So if we peeled back the, pro, the, the pro-abortion platform, and we got back into the eugenics, and we got back into the forced sterilization, and we get back to the Buck versus Bell Supreme Court decision in 1927, which ironically to this day has never been overturned. And Buck versus Bell said it was okay to forcefully sterilize a woman who was seen as quote unquote unfit for society. And when that decision was written, Oliver Wendell Holmes stated three generations of imbeciles is enough. And that was in 1927. So the entire platform of eliminating the undesirables and controlling population and eugenics were all the foundational elements into the abortion industry, which, like I said, really took hold in the 60s and was legalized just a few years after um, into the early 70s. Yeah, you know, it's it's amazing, Barry. your your knowledge and your um, and your uh, just great uh, overview of how we ended up where we ended up. 
Uh, you know, it, it's funny uh, how, how you mentioned that that Supreme Court decision in 1927 has never been overturned. Like, yeah. I mean, like, like when you think about that, wouldn't the the, the modern day feminist <laughs> be absolutely appalled at at that? Because what's the slogan? It's, my, you know, uh, my my body, my choice. Right. Isn't that isn't that what they say? <laughs> my body, my right. choice. And, and here it's OK to forcibly <laughs> forcibly sterilize you. Uh, that goes against everything that they're talking about, um, you know. And well, sure, it's, sure it is, right? And and I, a lot of those fundamental beliefs that they hold really all came out of Margaret Sanger, right? And Margaret Sanger was really into eugenics. Um, she in the 1920s, Margaret started the National Birth Control Society. And she was called before a grand jury because it was illegal to um, distribute birth control back then. And she was she had to face a grand jury, so she got on a boat and she went to uh, she went to uh, England. And then there she really started to learn more about the eugenics and their their philosophy on selective breeding. And when she came back to the United States, she carried those beliefs and she really started to promote them. So out of the National Birth Control Society, it became Planned Parenthood. Right. That was, that was the first organization that became Planned Parenthood, which was all Margaret Sanger, all her beliefs. And is in, in the 1960s, under the name of Planned Parenthood, they were openly, they weren't even shy about it. They openly said that they were promoting the selection of breeding that they were trying to get their numbers up for abortions through minorities. There are, there's documented letters that we have that show this. And it's early 1966 that the president of the Planned Parenthood Association back then is congratulating different areas of Planned Parenthood for the numbers that they're bringing in. Mm. It's absolutely disgusting that, you know, that, that they disguise themselves as health care for women. Right. When, it, all along, it was just a numbers game for them. It was a financial numbers game based on bonuses for employees on the number of abortions that they could increase at each facility. And all that, all those ideals were incorporated by Margaret Sanger, who knew Harry Laughlin, who was being supported by those large uh, corporations, that large Rockefeller and Carnegie money. Yeah. And... If she and she went through, and um, she openly discussed on television back in the late fifties and sixties her beliefs on selective breeding and where the country, the world, needed to be in "quote unquote" undesirables in eliminating them. Yeah. So that that that's the guise of all this, of all this women's health. Uh, abortion is, you know, it's your right, it's your body. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, yeah, yeah, well, and that's what ultimately it's led to. So, yeah, so that's what we're telling. That's what that's the project that we're involved in. So, and it's so um, important. It's so important what you're doing. It just is so important. So, folks, uh, especially young families, young Catholic families that might be listening to this, get behind uh, what what Barry is talking about. 
uh, I, I encourage you to visit uh, his website. Again, it's very simple, International Catholic Media Association, all spelled out. Uh, you can just Google that. Um, but uh, he also has the first or first seven steps.com as well, uh, which is that initial documentary that really explains, um, you know, the, the founding of the March for Life. But Barry, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, this is awesome. Uh, thank you for uh, standing up for life in, in all the different ways that you do so. And, uh, and also for uh, putting together this project because it is so needed and so necessary for our, uh, for our time. And uh, as, as it's always said, right, if we, if we know our past, we can, we can change our future. So, so thank you so very much for all the hard work you've been doing on this and will continue to do. So thank you. Sure. You're welcome, Bill. And I'll just say real quick, if, if people want to go to, they can email me at my personal email, riverwoodsberry at gmail.com. And, um, we've got some fabulous gifts for donations and, um, some really nice blessed rosaries that were blessed by Father Benedict, the rector up at Marytown and the shrine of Maximilian Colby. And we've got some other books, um, that are hand, you know, autographed by the authors and, so it's, send me an email, and uh, I'll let you know what's available for a donation. And uh, they make great gifts, which, you know, we're coming up to the gift season, and um, you're supporting a great cause along the way. Absolutely. Well, folks, uh, this has been an episode of Young Catholics Respond. Until next time, from all of us here at Patchwork Heart Ministry, I'm Bill Snyder. Keep beating to your Catholic heart. You've been listening to Young Catholics Respond, a radio initiative of Patchwork Heart Ministry. To learn more about our ministry and program, visit us at patchworkheart.org. Or to get exclusive access and early ministry updates, become our patron on Patreon by searching for Patchwork Heart Ministry.